This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're working our way into chapter 6. Jesus is talking about many of the practical aspects of the Christian life, the day-to-day behavior of citizens of the kingdom of God. He's covered the standards for giving, and now Jesus wants to teach us the proper way to pray. Prayer is something that can be quite mysterious to the new believer. Sadly, our public prayers can get so flowery and formal that the average person thinks they have no ability or even right to come to the Father with their needs. But Jesus tells us good news about how we should approach prayer and makes us all thankful that we have access to God, no matter how official we sound. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. We're going to spend some time talking about prayer. And since prayer builds spiritual intimacy with God, it must come as naturally as drinking water for us. Let's therefore learn what God expects from us so that we can adjust our lives accordingly. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 6. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. Jesus says this, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you that they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So here we have, church, how subjects of the kingdom of heaven are to pray. And Jesus breaks this down into two halves. The first, He presents the motivations for prayer, and then He exposes the two approaches to prayer. So let's follow that same format and look at the motivations for prayer in verses 5 through 6. He begins this session here with the conjunction, end. I'm not sure you have that in your version of the Bible. I didn't have it on mine, but maybe if you have the New King James Version, it starts with, and when you pray, indicating to us that there's continuity with the previous paragraph. So uh, what we understand from this is he is talking about the same frame of mind, the same foundation that he built in the beginning of the chapter, chapter 6 here. And he enforces that continuity when he brings the hypocrites again as a negative example. He repeats the same technique in verse 16, telling us that everything from verse 1 to verse 18 is built on the same foundation there. Now, he introduces another pattern here again by contrasting earthly rewards with heavenly rewards. In fact, you should circle that sentence in verse 4 and then again in verse 5. And in verse 6 here, contrasting heavenly rewards and earthly rewards. That's the pattern. And he affirms, therefore, that subjects of the kingdom of heaven should pray regularly. Why do we know that? Because he includes the word when, not if. So we understand that subjects of the kingdom of heaven, believers in Christ, are to pray regularly. It's not something we do every once in a while. It's a way of life for us, as natural as drinking water. Therefore, we understand, church, that a prayerless life reflects a spiritually unhealthy condition. Just like 
you would dehydrate from the lack of water intake, your soul will run dry if you neglect such an important act of righteousness that Jesus is describing here with prayer. It's communion with the Father. It's fellowship with God. It builds intimacy on a spiritual level with Him. But regrettably, I'm the first to admit, we from time to time only access prayer as an emergency button. When things get tough and when somebody dies and we need comfort or when the situation gets tough and we need to be delivered, then we access the emergency button that we call prayer. Regrettably, I, again, I repeat, I'm the first one to admit that we fall into that pattern from time to time. But I can't think of a better way, church, to go through a crisis, to endure difficult times than on our knees in prayer, building that fellowship with the Father. And therefore, Jesus then instructs his audience how to practice this act of righteousness, this discipline of prayer in a way that is pleasing to God, not in a way that's going to impress men. And that's the point that he makes here. Speaking about the motivation of the heart, then he goes on to identify two opposite audiences to our prayers. And we'll, let's talk about them. The first one is in verse 5, the wrong audience. There's a wrong audience and there's the right audience when we're praying. And he talks about the wrong one first in verse 5, and he condemns theatrics once again. And how do we know that? Because Matthew quotes Jesus here in Greek using the same word as he used for theater. And that we talked about this last week. And now he's saying, don't, don't practice theatrics when you're praying because driven by the desire to impress these actors that he identifies here as hypocrites, presumably the scribes, led by the scribes and Pharisees, they articulated their prayers publicly for a show in order to demonstrate a pseudo-spirituality, in order to get people to think they're at a higher level of spirituality, which doesn't really correspond to the truth. And Jesus sees right through that. One way that they could do that, that they could display their fabricated spirituality was in the local synagogue. There were precursors of the local church buildings that we have today because they would get together, they would read scripture, and then there would be a great opportunity for them to show off their eloquence and their memorized prayer. And by the way, we'll talk about this. Eloquence is not the problem. If you are eloquent by nature, if you have a rich vocabulary, then that, and that's how you pray, that's fine. But that wasn't the problem. Jesus continues and uh, accuses them of, uh, of a show, of being hypocrites, of being actors. In fact, remember, the word hypocrite comes from the original Greek that describes an actor, someone who would wear a mask that would cover the entire face, representing someone they were not. Now, the public prayer thing on the streets was customary. When the time of the afternoon sacrifice would come, somebody would blow a trumpet from Jerusalem, from the temple, to let everybody know it's time for the afternoon sacrifice. But that was the cue for these guys here, for the religious actors, to stop what they were doing and enunciate their prayers loudly enough for everybody to see, for everybody to admire them and applaud them for their great spirituality. Again, they wanted to do this to be heard, to have all eyes on them, to be admired and to be applauded. And Christ is saying, I see you right through that, and that is not the right motivation for your prayer. And again, neither the eloquence or the posture for the prayer was the problem, according to Jesus Christ. The motivation of the heart was the problem. You can pray standing up, no problem. You can pray laying down if you want to. Again, the heart was the problem. And he identifies the problem by including the, the two words, so that. By the way, circle those words in your Bible, so that, because they indicate purpose. Every time you see that, it's a basic rule of language, of grammar here. You see that what comes next is the purpose. And Jesus, therefore, is identifying the eloquence is not the problem. The posture is not the problem. Praying publicly is not the problem. There's a time for that. The problem is the motivation of the heart because he says they do this so that they would be seen by men in order to portray a spirituality that is not there. 
subjects of the kingdom of heaven should have nothing to do with that pattern, with that low standard of righteousness. The problem is the motivation of the heart. We must guard against the desire to impress people because that's the foundation of what Jesus Christ is using here. He's using the example of prayer. And he spends more time in that particular act of righteousness than in the other two here. The next one is fasting. But the purpose for this is to alert us against the danger of displaying our religiosity for people to see in order to impress them, neglecting the fact that God sees everything. And I love what comes next here in the verse, verse 5, when Jesus says, Truly I say to you. In other words, he's saying, he's affirming his authority. He's saying, I don't need to quote from anybody. I say, I speak the truth because I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he goes on and says, truly I say to you. By the way, that's another pattern that you see here in these verses. And later on in the Sermon on the Mount, that's the reason why people are so impressed or inspired by his authority. Because he doesn't have to quote from any teacher. He says, truly I say to you, affirming his authority as the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. So he has the authority to teach us how to pray because he is the truth. He is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. He doesn't need to quote anybody. He is the incarnate word of God. And according to him, prayers motivated by pride may impress people, but they produce inferior rewards. And that's his point. Inferior rewards, namely the temporary admiration of strangers. What a low standard. Because as soon as somebody comes in and puts in a bigger show, a more elaborate display, then your history. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's the reward. If that's what you're after, that's a low standard, but that's all you're going to get. There's something much better. There's a higher one that we need to aim at. There's a higher standard. Why? Because he says, again, in Matthew 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we need to aim higher in our prayer life and focus our attention on the right audience because impressing people is the wrong audience. And that's what he focused on next in verse 6, the right audience. The right audience concerning the motivation for our prayer. And Jesus then teaches us how to pray non-hypocritically, which builds spiritual intimacy with the Father, and he appeals to the omnipresence of God. I hope you notice that when he says, your Father is in secret. In other words, he's saying he's the God that is omnipresent. There is no way, no place in creation or outside of creation where God is not. So he is in the synagogues, he is in the uh, street corners, and he is in your secret place that you normally go and pray and pour out your heart before the Lord. He sees what's in your heart. So the point is, go and pursue this pattern, knowing that God is omnipresent. Now, praying alone in secret in your room, therefore, would eliminate the temptation to focus on the wrong audience. So there is a place to pray publicly. There is a time to do that when we're gathering publicly for worship. But he's saying, well, you need to focus on when you pray in secret, in developing your intimacy with God and pouring out your heart to God. But Jesus says that the Father rewards genuine prayer. So let's talk about how he does that when the motivation of the heart is right. Let me tell you, God is more interested in uh, adjusting your prayer life than you are. How do we know that? Because of what Paul says to the Romans in Romans 8, and that's a great encouragement to us. Let me read Romans 8, verses 26 and 27 here for us. He says this, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And see, and that's the reward, the immediate reward that we get when we pray with the right motivation for the right audience. The Holy Spirit is our prayer partner. So when we are praying to God, to the Father, and we don't know how to pray because we're sinful human beings, the Holy 
Holy Spirit intercedes for us, and that's the reward, because when we pray according to God's will, for example, and we say, Father, please get me out of this situation, then the Holy Spirit comes and intercedes for us and prays this, Father, what he really needs is endurance. What he really needs is strength and wisdom to face the situation. So I pray, don't get him out of the situation, get him through the situation. And we experience that when we pray according to God's will, because of the intercession of God. So we pray to God with the intercession of God. Likewise, when you pray something like this, Father, change that person who is causing me grief. Change my spouse. Change my children because they're causing me grief. Then the Holy Spirit intercedes on your behalf and says, Father, what he or she really needs is long-suffering, perseverance, and humility of heart. So I pray change his or her heart first so that he or she can deal with the situation in a Christ-like manner. That's the reward, church. That is the immediate reward that we get when we pray in accordance to the will of the Father and we follow this pattern and this standard right here. Now, there are future rewards, of course. I'm going to talk about them later when we talk about fasting here. But for now, let's just be comforted with this truth here that when we're praying, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, especially if we're praying according to His will. And God's will is not hard to find. It's been revealed to us in the Word of God. So when we pray, Lord, make me a better husband. Make me a better wife. Help me forgive so-and-so. Help me treat others with kindness. Help me be more like you. Help me be a soul winner. When we know that these are the things that God already wants you to do, He is more interested in answering your prayer than you are. So, church, I want you to be encouraged by this. God specializes in smoothing your rough edges, in molding characters, in refining faith. So go to your room, shut the door, and pour out your heart before the one who can do all things and who knows everything, the right audience for our prayer. So that's the motivation for prayer according to Jesus here. There is a wrong audience and there's a right audience that we need to focus on. And then he goes on now to speak about the approaches to prayer in verses 7 through 8. And we know that he is continuing, he is building on what he has said before. He gives now another negative example. See, first he said, well, don't do it like the hypocrites do. And then in verse 7, he goes on to say, don't do it like the pagans do. Don't imitate the Gentiles, he says. And the word translated for Gentiles is literally pagans. So he says, don't imitate the hypocrite religious folks who try to fabricate a religion that they do not have. Now here, he says, don't imitate the Gentiles. Don't do it like the pagans do because they're praying to the wrong deities anyway. To gods and goddesses who cannot hear because they don't exist. So don't imitate them. So when he talks about the approaches to prayer. He exposes opposite mindsets. There's the incorrect mindset in verse 7 and the correct mindset in verse 8. Let's talk about the incorrect mindset first because that's how he does it here. That's the format that he uses. The incorrect mindset. Once again, he assumes that prayer is natural for believers, that we pray just like we breathe, just like we eat food. So he's assuming that. He says, when you pray, Don't imitate the Gentiles. And he instructs his listeners now from not following the pagan model. Common at the time, and it's common today too. Now, the expression meaningless repetitions or meaningless or vain repetition that Matthew uses here in quoting Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is the translation of a prefixed verb, a prefixed Greek verb. Let's review what a prefix is, okay? When you attach a prefix in front of a word, you completely transform that word. Let me give you an example from English. The word generation. When you attach the letters R-E in front of that word, you have regeneration. That's a completely different 
word. It means completely something different. It means to create again. So when I say we say we have been regenerated, I mean we have been born again because we attach the prefix to that word. Now, we have an example of that in the original Greek here. And the verb there, it's called logeo. The prefix is bato. The word is logeo in verse 7. Now, some of us are familiar with the word logeo because we get the English word logic from it. It means to speak. So that's the verb, to speak. Now, the prefix bato, which would be, if you want to transliterate it, it would be b-a-t-t-o, is a figure of speech. Okay, that's a prefix that is a figure of speech called onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia, a figure of speech. And that figure of speech means the meaning of the word is exactly what the word sounds like. Let me give you a few examples from English. Meow is an example of that. The word honk is another example of that. The word boom is another example of that. We know what these words mean because they mean exactly what they sound like. So Matthew is using that in quoting Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in saying he's using a prefix verb, the prefix of that verb is a figure of speech that teaches an onomatopoeia, something that means what it sounds like. Therefore, the conclusion is that Jesus condemns repetition of meaningless words, endless repetition of meaningless words when you are praying, because that's what the pagans do. Subjects of the kingdom of heaven should stay away from that practice, because that's pagan practice. Now, the closest equivalent English translation of this verb that we were talking about is stammer. Maybe you have that in your Bibles or in in the margin or in the notes of your Bible, the word stammer. But reason with me for a second here. Jesus cannot be condemning stammering because otherwise people who suffer from speech impediments will be disqualifying from praying. Okay, so he's not talking about stuttering or stammering because God the Father still hears the prayers of people who have speech impediments. What he's saying is here, do not imitate pagan priests who would enter into a narcotic-induced trance and start to utter unintelligible speech repeatedly to give the impression they were communicating with their deities. That is what he's condemning. He's saying, don't do that. Such a practice would deceive people into thinking that they were communicating with their gods or goddesses and that they were real and these priests were the only channel of access to them. And Jesus is saying that has nothing to do with true biblical Christianity, with the way subjects of the kingdom of heaven should pray. Reason with me one more time. You can't communicate properly unless you use words. And those words are part of speech and they relate properly to one another. For example, as prepositions, conjunctions, noun, pronouns, verbs. And when you use communication, when you're communicating with one another and you're using words, you're engaging the mind Now, we do it subconsciously because it's so natural for us. We don't even think about it, but we are engaging the mind. So what Jesus is saying here, what these folks do, the Gentiles, the pagans, they disengage the mind. They are drugged. Sometimes they keep repeating chants so that that would induce some sort of a trance so that they can start speak unintelligible speech repeatedly. You can't properly communicate if you're doing that. Now, when you combine that practice with demonic possession, you have a recipe for dangerous deception. And that's what Christ is saying here. Subjects of the kingdom of God should stay away from that. Now, unfortunately, this practice has crept into the Christian church. I have been in prayer meetings where people claiming to speak for God invented speech that is unintelligible, and they say that it's so-called a prayer language, repeating those meaningless words, and they would concoct translations to tell me that God was speaking to me through them. 
But I know a little bit of translation because I know two different languages. And I'm thinking that can't be right. They can't be speaking a whole paragraph of meaningless words and translating a sentence like that. That just doesn't work. And furthermore, God doesn't use bad grammar when he's translating (laughs) supposed prayer languages or heavenly language to people. Now, again, we need to understand and be discerning. and, And we need to abide by what Christ is prescribing here in our prayer life. Now, I didn't think in the example I'm using here, it's been more than one time. I didn't think the whole thing was terrifyingly blasphemous until I grew in knowledge of Scripture and I understood the theatrics of these things as such a practice. Obviously, these people wanted me to think that they have achieved an elevated level of spirituality that only a few in the body of Christ achieve. And obviously, the the implication to that is that you need to come to me for guidance. The implication of that being that Scripture is not able to communicate the mind of God. Therefore, you need a fabricated experience in order to raise awareness of His presence. Church, we need to have discernment against this because this is what Christ is saying. Don't do that. That is not the proper way to engage in prayer. It's much better for you to go to your room and articulate your needs before the Lord who already knows them in the language that you can understand so that you know what you're talking about and your mind is fully engaged because if you're not engaging the mind, then you don't know what you're talking about. Now, believers shouldn't have nothing to do with anything like this. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 15, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the mind also. In other words, I need to know what I'm talking about. And furthermore, when the Holy Spirit fills a person, that person has self-control. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.23. God never takes over anybody's mental faculties. That's what demons do. That's demon possession. The authors of Scripture weren't possessed by God. They were moved by the Spirit, the Bible says, but they have kept their personalities, which are very easy to discern when you're reading the different books of the Bible. God has used them, but He didn't take over their minds. He inspired them to write the words of Scripture. And again, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it means you are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And when you are controlled by the Holy Spirit, you have no desire to call attention to yourself. So, that's what Christ is saying. Let's not do these things. Now, secondarily, the restriction against imitating pagan practices also applies to reciting intelligible speech repeatedly without giving any thought to the process. Because if you're simply repeating words that you have been instructed to do, even if they're English words, even if they're words you understand, but you're not engaging the mind, you have no idea why you're doing it, that's pointless. And Jesus says, don't do that either. Now, there's nothing wrong with reciting a prayer, nothing wrong with reciting a liturgy or a prayer, as long as you're not doing that as a penance, as a punishment, or as a sacrifice. There's nowhere in the Bible that says prayer is meant to punish you if you keep repeating it over and over again. And also, furthermore, prayer does not save us from anything. We're saved by grace through faith. So prayer is a part of a righteous act that we do as members or subjects of the kingdom of heaven, but we need to do it in the right way. So he exposes then the incorrect mindset in the approach to prayer. But now he talks about the correct mindset. Verse 8. After then instructing his audience to not imitate the hypocrites and to not imitate the pagans, he reminds them of the divine attribute of omniscience. Remember, he talked about omnipresent before. The Father is in secret. And now he says the Father already knows what you're going to speak before you even utter a word. So what's the point? The point is this, church, understanding this aspect of the nature of God takes you to a whole new level of intimacy with God. Here's how. We don't need to inform him of anything because he already knows everything. In fact, remember, a couple of months ago, we talked about some of the attributes of God. He knows 
potential reality and actual reality. In other words, he knows what's going to happen. He knows what would have happened if you had taken a different approach or a different decision. In fact, he has ordained actual truth. That's the omniscience of God. So he knows reality from eternity past into eternity future. He knows exactly what's going to happen. So he doesn't need the benefit of your counsel or my counsel. Let's just get that off the table, okay? Now, God doesn't need our grocery list either because he's not a genie in a bottle ready to give us three wishes. Instead, we need to utter our prayers to God, for example, to recognize his power in contrast with our limitations. You see, that's why we pray for healing, for protection, or for enablement, because we know the one who's able to accomplish all of these things in us and through us. We know we're not able, so we pray to articulate our need and our desire to have him accomplish his power in us. Isn't that what scripture says when God said to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. So we pray to acknowledge that, to recognize that. Secondly, we pray to acknowledge his holiness in contrast with our ungodliness. And that's why we pray for restoration of broken relationships and freedom from habitual sin because we model holiness in Him. Isn't that what Christ says? Be perfect because your Father is perfect. So we model holiness on Him and we acknowledge that and we lift that up and we say, Lord, we want to be holy like that. We want you to transform our hearts. And finally, we affirm His goodness in contrast with our own corruption. That's why we pray for peace and justice, because we long to see those things. And we know He is the Prince of Peace. And we know peace and justice are only going to happen when He establishes the Millennial Kingdom, the theocracy, when Christ is going to rule on the earth. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.